Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 154 of the Weekly Wheatley Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are, uh, YouTube and all the other places that we uh, we uh, broadcast from. I'm a bit professional there. Um, thanks uh, for listening to the last couple of episodes where I was on my own because busy Christmas um, people are too busy to come on to a podcast to be fair so I did a couple of solo and thank you for your pa- your patience on that and your support uh, you can support us on buy me a coffee uh, buy me a coffee and the link is in the description wherever you are but more importantly let's get into this week's episode my guest today is a psychotherapist and an author and her name is Stella O'Malley how are you doing Stella hello there how's it going very well thank you very much thank you very much for giving us your uh, time delighted to be here Thank you. Uh, mental health all day, every day. Well, that, they're, they're the kind of guests we want, you know, because yeah. it makes it very much uh, easier for me, Stella. Uh, we always start at the in the same place. Could you give us a, a short history of your upbringing, please? Okay. Um, I grew up in Blanchardstown in Dublin 15 and um, very boring suburban <laughs> life that it was. And um, I... Uh, left home I had quite a difficult childhood I was I was an unhappy kid very unhappy kid for various reasons and I left home at 17 and you know moved into as such Dublin City Mm. which was where my star was at all times in my teenage years (laughs) couldn't get there fast enough and lived there for um, quite some years and then ultimately moved down the country married well moved down the country then married and had kids and I'm happy living in Offaly now, but I, I wonder, like, you know, will I always stay here? I'm not sure, but I, I like it for now. Yeah, well, the, you're just right next to me. I'm in in Westmead, so it's it's oh, yeah. Not a, yeah, yeah. So it's not too far away. And um, I, Are you I from spent. Dublin too? No, I'm actually from, I'm actually from Athlone, but I I went to a, a school up in Swords in, in Dublin, so. Uh, there might be a slight bit of a, a twang yeah. still left in me. Yeah, <laughs> people do tend to point that out, but yeah, and, and it's it's um uh, again. I'm quite happy where I am now. It's down the country and it's a little bit quieter. But when I do get up to Dublin City, I, I still very much enjoy it. You know, it's a, yeah. I do feel like I've gone home when I go to Dublin. I like the wit. I like the irreverence. I like the quick answers. I like I like it. I yeah. think you can have more fun with strangers in Dublin. Yeah, I, like I talked about this before about the anonymity of, of the city as well. It's, it's something that's quite comfortable. Like, I have an anxiety disorder and, you know, I when I find myself, I used to think it was really daunting going to somewhere like Dublin City because it's so big and compared to where, where I'm from, obviously, and, and uh, there's so many people. But then I kind of started to see the other side of it where I am anonymous and I'm sometimes I'm nervous about meeting people and all I'm like, oh, it's not the day to kind of talk to people. But when you're in Dublin, you just kind of walk around and go about your own business. That's quite comforting for me. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's also the comfort of saying hello to people. I live in Burr, mm-hmm. small enough town, but you know an awful lot of faces. And there's a comfort, I think, in just nodding to people. Sometimes just going out and go to the shop and you just see quite a few people that you need. When you live a very online life, which I do, it's nice to just as such touch grass. You know what I mean? You go outside, you get to shops and you meet a few people and it's grounding in a way. Mm. Uh, I That's yeah. that's interesting. Do, when I'm out here so i'm like maybe seven or eight kilometers from the from athlone town and everybody always nods and waves and i do i love that like uh but the closer you kind of get to athlone town it's kind of it's not really there anymore but when i was growing up everybody used to say hello and nod and it's a shame because it's a really nice like you said the kind of grounding thing but kind of a comforting that's all right i'll just i'll talk away there uh but but it's 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 nice to have that like I don't know. It should, it is nice to have that little bit, but I, the best of all worlds, I'm I'm kind of getting at the moment. So that that's kind of enjoyable. So you say you were an unhappy kid. Like when did you first become aware of mental health? Was there just like a sadness to you as a child, but or was it something deeper than that? Yeah, I suppose there was there was problems in the family, and there was you know alcoholism, and I think I was at a very young age, about four or five, I realized, all oh, right, so we've a we have a different family. We have things going on that others don't have. And that was very interesting for me and to realize, and it's all secret. It's not spoken about and it's not, a pre- you do not speak about it. Mm-hmm. I was very made, that was made very clear to me, uh, even though it was blindingly obvious to everybody. 
Yeah. So, the, you know, it was ridiculous, very, very kind of secret, non-secret. Like you're not talking about it, but everybody knows about it and it's completely accepted mm. uh, by everybody. And there was, yeah, so there was, it was not only alcoholism, there was an awful lot of dysfunction and, and, and pretty extreme mental health issues in the family. So I was aware of it from a very young age, but I wasn't aware of how to navigate it. Do you know what I mean? I just realized, okay, so some people live very crazy lives. And then the rest of us don't. And we live alongside each other. And we're all supposed to get along. <laughs> and this is mental. <laughs> how do I fit in all this? So uh, how I fitted, I think I was I, I became very angry. I, I didn't like it. I was I was unhappy. I felt, you know, the people with the mental health issues were ruling the roost and the people who who didn't have them. Where we're, we're pandering or something, you know, very much at the beholden to anybody else who hadn't got the issue. So basically the the squeaky pig gets the meal. If you follow me, the person who's loud is going to get everything and other people are being forced to endure an awful lot of unhappiness as a result. And so that was shockingly unfair to me and didn't seem right on any level. And um, I suppose it's no accident that in my 30s, I decided to train as a psychotherapist. Right. So it wasn't until you until you got to your 30s when you decided to become a psychotherapist. Like, like, when did it when did that like switch go off in your mind and why did it go off in your mind at that age? I don't know. I was. Uh, well, I do know. I don't know exactly, actually. So I, I had a very uh, uh, colourful, misspent youth. So I was nowhere near training to be a psychotherapist. And I was very wild and um, had a good few years of, of wildness. And, you know, it was dysfunctional and crazy, but fun in its own tense, anxious way. It was an awful lot of fun. And um, I had a shop in Dublin, in Temple Bar, and that was fun, great crack. And it was a little bit vacuous, a little bit boring, even though it was quite um, um, fun at the start. As the years went by, it's like, oh, my God, 25 grey T-shirts, 36 black ones. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It felt like I, I wouldn't mind some bit more brain going on in life. And um, I was I was tapping my fingers looking around in Dublin going I, I don't know if I want to live here it's, it was very dysfunctional pretty much all of my friends were addicts and so there was an awful lot of of really crazy things happening and I just thought I, I want to move out I want to move out to the country I want to get a life for myself as such and when I moved out to the country I didn't know what I wanted to do I was looking into getting another shop quite seriously clothes shop and um I started being a DJ. I can see why, because I, right. I, I was basically I'd sold my shop and I was like, right, you're 26, 27. What are you going to do with your life? And um, I was like, what, what, what will I do? And I, I applied to be a DJ in these kind of local radio stations. And I got because I speak Irish, I got a job. And then I realized I was diabolical at that. And again, there wasn't very much brain. I was crap at the the tech <laughs> I, do, I can talk, but I couldn't do anything else. And so that was a disaster. And I was figuring out that that was a disaster. I, 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 it took a while for me to realize you're not suited to this. And somewhere in the midst of that, I went to an open evening for a course for counseling and psychotherapy. And it was like falling in love. It was bang. I went to that night and I went, I have to do this. I have to do this. This is for me. So it's kind of interesting that I went to the course. I remember when I was about 16 saying to my brother that I'd like to be a psychologist. And he went, like, I don't think you'd be sympathetic enough. And I was like, and that kind of derailed me now I think about it because, that, you know, I didn't go near it for another 15 years, I'd say. Um, but then when I saw that open evening, bang, I was in. Yeah, loved it. That's a brilliant thing that kind of no, I suppose maybe it fell into your lap, but it came came along and it was perfect because opportunity. I, I went to the open evening. So I was interested yeah. enough to go from Burr to Tullamore to an open evening. So clearly it was, I was looking, I was looking for things at the time, you know. And I like, 
um, this is something we we've spoken on the podcast before. When you start as a psychotherapist, you've done your training and you you start your first few sessions. Is there an element of like imposter syndrome to Mass, yeah. really? And it was very interesting. I had a brilliant lecturer who is now my friend, Fiona Hoban. She's absolutely brilliant. And I remember her explaining to us novice counsellors that we shouldn't tell the client that this is our first client because then you're imposing your nerves on them. Mm-hmm. And it's either a therapeutic process or it isn't. So if it is a therapeutic process, you're offering that to them. So you you don't imbue them with nerves by telling them, listen, you're my first. But honestly, looking back at the start, when I was first, I was my enthusiasm might have carried the day, but I was really into strategies. And now I'm not at all. I just <laughs> Jesus Christ. And if somebody started throwing strategies at me, I just think, are you a bit new at this? Yeah, because I've been to, I've been to a number of therapists and it's it's interesting to to note the different approaches with therapists because everybody has their own approach with, with things. And can I just say, I forgot yeah. to add quite an important part of all of that, was in my 20s, I started going to therapists, trying okay. to figure out who I was. And I was very distressed. There was a lot of fun, but there was an awful lot of distress, a huge amount in my 20s. And I start no, really from the moment I left home, I was looking for for help, really. And I went to a range of different therapists and they were all diabolical. Oh, I used to think I could do better than this. Yeah. And I never meant that in an arrogant way, as in this is so bad. I could do better than this was how I used to think. And I had a series of unfortunate incidents with therapists, which I can tell you about if you want later. And uh, each time I thought. I can't believe they're doing this. Did did they not get training? Did they not realize this is a crazy thing to do? And then, so when I went to that open night, it would be somebody who had been to quite a few therapists and had never got anywhere. And it wasn't from lack of interest. And I'd read, read quite a few self-help books, which had changed my life. And I had gone to a self-development program, which was a game changer for me, which was completely, you take on your own life. You 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 do it. And that was like a psychology course. It was like counselling for beginners, if you follow me. And that that course that I went to was the biggie. And I don't remember the name of the man and the woman who gave it. And it was phenomenal. It changed my life. And it wasn't counselling. So I went to counselling. So it's interesting anyway mm. that I, I, I kind of very much on the well, I couldn't be much worse than what's out there was my vibe. Well, it's the, it's the other thing, uh, Stella, where I, I would like to be my last... Um, therapist who I went to see was someone who'd been through it and you know seen it all and and felt the you know what depression is and you know anxiety is and it's it's somehow like the connection became easier between myself and himself because of that you know that they had been there I didn't want someone who was very clinical and and and, you know like you were saying strategy someone who's like this is the way it's gonna go and you don't find that four times and all yeah that you know that kind of thing is was look maybe some people like that stuff i certainly didn't like that stuff but when you are approaching like different clients and i'm i'm guessing that your clients are like go from a young age to to a you know an old age does the approach change like does the approach have to change if you're talking to a say say a, a teen compared to someone who's in maybe in their 40s yeah, I find with teens, if I tell them a little bit about myself, they they gel with me that little bit easier. And when um, it's somebody older, they don't have that need to yeah. hear about me. They There's more of a trust naturally there that they can see what I'm about. While a teenager, I find an awful lot of teenagers who come to me, they'll have been to others and they'll have had a very clinical approach mm-hmm. and they are often really... Uh, alienated from the entire concept of therapy very often by the time they come to me and it takes a little bit of me being human with them I do think that's the only difference not a massive difference Mm -hmm. but it's something I'm aware of that the kind of the jaded adolescent who's like you're my fourth and frankly I hate you all and they really they really there's a lot I do think sadly there is a lot of um very clinical approach to teenagers which is exactly the opposite approach to teen they want authenticity the last thing they want is this white coat checkboard vibe like of course i think it's 
Yeah, I think it'll put anyone off at any group, you know, at any age group. It's 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 um, it's interesting. You you've written a number of of books, um, and there was a couple that I kind of wanted to touch on, if you don't mind. There was one in particular uh, called Cotton Wool, Wool Kids. Can you tell me the idea behind that and why you wanted to write it? Yeah, it's up there. Somewhere. Yeah, see in the yeah. background. Um, I wrote Cotton Wool Kids is, is probably my favourite book. It's my first book and it took me years and years to write. Apparently that's very normal that your first book takes you mm. 20 years and every other book you whack out. <laughs> but um, Cotton Wool Kids was released in 2015. And what it was, was I became a mother in tw- 2007 and then uh, I had another kid in 2009. And um, I realised oh my God, parenting has changed since I was a kid, like phenomenally. And there's an awful lot of anxiety, a hell of a lot of effort, huge amount of very loving parents who are very engaged, who have very anxious children. And it was a phenomenon that I realized I was being demanded to be brought into. So I was being told to worry about things. Just one story comes to mind. Mm My little baby, I was, I was, I'd collected my baby from the childminder. She was about 10 months old and I was very good at being able to keep her asleep. So I was able to carry her from there into the car and she was still asleep. I had that technique, like, and I had kind of settled her in and uh, she's fast asleep and I closed the door and then I realized, oh my God, I've locked her in. And the childminder <laughs> kind of went mental and told me I had to uh, ring, I had to crack, I had to smash the window. Mm-hmm. And she was giving me bricks and stuff. And I was like, no, she's asleep. I'm not going to go crashing windows in and all this sort of stuff. And what I did was rang the AA and she got her neighbor over and the neighbor and her basically ganged up on me, basically saying I was neglecting the kid for not smashing the window to save the child who was fast asleep. in And I was pushing back on, no, if she wakes up, I can smile at her. It's cool. Everything's fine. I just need to open the car. Anyway, the AA prioritized, by the way, when it's a child in the car. And they came very, very fast and they opened the car. But it was part of that frenetic, hysterical, smash the car, come on, save the child. And I was like, there's no need, it's mad. And uh, 2007 was the year Madeleine McCann went missing in Portugal. It was massive and it was the height of stranger danger. Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about? Height of Stranger Danger. And it's now been, I wrote to uh, Cottonwood Kids in 2015, which was a very pushback against Stranger Danger. You know, it's vastly more likely that your own family and friends will hurt you rather than any stranger. And then in 2018, I think, or else 2019, the CDC in America debunked the phrase Stranger Danger because they said it causes more harm than Mm -hmm. it uh, helps. And it does. And that was what that book was saying. It was saying all this anxiety while it comes from a place of love is creating incredibly anxious children and we've really lost our way in parenting and it's not from lack of love it's not from lack of effort but in a way it's too intense for the kids uh i'm a a jiu-jitsu coach and i coach little kids you know and it's just when you're telling the story about the uh you know the car and I sometimes get that feeling in there, you know, if if a child falls, now they're on soft oh, yeah. mats, but I, I like I can't help but feel panic because obviously you're responsible for the children when they're in the in the gym. Um, uh, they fall on soft mats, and sometimes they get hit with a very very soft foam ball. But it it does uh, brings about that sense of panic. Now I. I will say my my fellow coach who doesn't have an anxiety disorder is a lot calmer in the situation. But it's funny to hear that like. I'm just thinking if I was in the situation with you, I would probably be on the side of smash the window because that's <laughs> the immediate instinctual reaction to it. But you're the mother who knows the child. And, you know, it's 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 very weird. And I'm sure you've heard that kind of before about people would think. And oh, I remember doing the equation at the time thinking, but if I smash the window, I have to get the window. St- she'll be crying. Yeah. I'll be driving along with a broken window. I'll have to go somewhere to get it fixed, yeah. which is a major deal when you live in the country. It's a crap equation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 you know what I mean? But the, the hysteria is strong. And you know, the way you say about the jujitsu, I've really studied it. I studied it in massive, massive detail in Cottonwood Kids. And basically, it came in with 24 hour news in the late 80s, where they were selling news to us rather than giving us a public service of mm-hmm. news. And when they started selling news, they really led with if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads. 
horrible stories get people's eyes will keep you interested by freaking you out. And it has created a massive secondary impact of a, a huge knowledge of all the things that could go wrong, which has made a huge amount of anxiety. So I wrote Cotton Wool Kids and then I wrote Bullyproof Kids, kind of trying to empower children who are kind of, you know, the anxious kids and who are on these edges. And then I wrote Fragile, again, talking about anxiety. It's 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 an epidemic. Like mm-hmm. Anxiety is just phenomenally common and it's oh, yeah. it's it's a prison. And it's a self-made prison. And I strongly believe that we need to know how safe we are compared to other generations, how much more education, how much easier we have it so that we can liberate ourselves from this terribly, terribly distressing prison that people are in. Absolutely. Um, There's never a good time to drop an advert in, Stella, but this is what... (laughs) Yeah, you have a little break there. I'll read out an advert real quick and we'll get back into it. Okay, nearly took everything out of it there. Um, Fusion Training Centre, Monkstand, Athlone. A place to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Centre or drop in for a chat. Fusion, uh, messed up. Fusion Training Centre, trade like a warrior. I was so close there. Um, there was... There, there's something that I kind of wanted to lead into uh, bully, um, bullyproof kids because I have a friend who's uh, a father to two young kids who aren't quite the uh, school age. Now, I'm not a dad myself, but he talks to me about trying to instill in them, like, you know, a sense of like what they should do if they're bullied like or this this is his plan for them i should say rather than doing it now because they're still too young but like not and people often think like what i do if i'm bullied or oh, hit them a smack he's not talking about that he's talking about the idea like the psychology behind it or you know coming to him and telling him or talking to someone and you know it's something he's worried about and it's not something that i've ever really thought about what was your reason for writing that book oh yeah I wrote it because so many teenagers came to me and it wasn't just that they were being bullied, although many of them had been bullied in primary school. It was also because they felt on the edges of the social circles. They could never really feel part of things. And there was a feeling of disempowerment among anybody who'd been bullied. They never quite knew. I noticed with the teenagers I worked with that they didn't understand the bullying dynamic. They just understood I was bullied. And they hadn't really got into a deeper understanding and when you give somebody an understanding they kind of go oh so it was about them not me and that really frees them up because they an awful lot of bullied people think that they have been watched evaluated and judged to be not good enough and that's incredibly frightening and it's happening like you know at a young age 9 10 11 is, is is a pretty vicious time because often the other children haven't quite learned civilized behavior. Hmm. 13, 14 is a particularly vicious time. And then by the time they're about 15 or 16, they've a, a section of the school or the group have learned you don't do that. Mm-hmm. They've not everybody, but a section have learned it. But it's it's so frightening for the kid who doesn't understand what the hell happened and why was I chosen? And if I can work with a kid and explain, this is probably why you were targeted. They feel better. They don't feel worse. They feel they realize, oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah, okay. And I think it's really, really important. And Bullyproof Kids is the book that has done the best. And I can see why, because it's it's helped so many people. I don't think very much in-depth knowledge on bullying had happened, really. There's a few good books, but there's not many. And it's it's a massively the amount of people either had been bullied and I was working with them. Or I was seeing somebody who was 40 or 50 or 60 and would say, I'd say, when did things first go wrong? And they'd say, well, I was bullied when I was a child. It's so commonly yeah. the first kind of derailing of a person. Uh, the thing which separates maybe us from, from kids now is is the idea that, you know, when you, if you're bullied at school, if, unfortunately I wasn't, but if you're bullied at school and you go home and shut the door, you know, the voices aren't aren't there. At least they're, they might be up here, but they're not, you know, in your face. But now with all the stuff that kids have and the, the access to social media and stuff like that, it be, it's become even worse And those things. And we've heard some really horrible cases, like you talk about, you know, uh, the way the news brings it out. But 
terrible cases of kids taking their own lives because of bullying and it never ceases. I can't imagine the 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 pain and the anxiety that kids have to go through now compared to what we did. It's relentless. Like the social media pylons, the intricacies mm. of it, the fake accounts, the you know, the amount of times it turns out that the anonymous troller is their best friend. Mm. There's so much weird. It brings out the dark side in us. The ability to be anonymous brings out the shadow side of a person. And it's frightening what it brings out. It really, it it scares me. I think, you know, I understand the freedom of anonymity, but I think people underestimate how much of our less civilized side it brings out in us. Yeah, I agree. And it's so easy to be that person on the other side of a uh, of a screen or a keyboard or whatever. It's just like uh, like it's and it's easy for us maybe to switch off like the, the, the social media or turn off or maybe it's not quite easy. Some people are <laughs> get quite addicted to it, but that's a, that's in a different way. Like, you know, this we're talking about kind of a different thing, but like it, it is easier for us to kind of turn off or or rationalize in our minds like why this like you said, like why somebody might be being like that to us, you know. But but to be a, a child and wanting to be part of a social group, um, wanting to be part of friends on Facebook and all this little thing can come in and anonymous accounts like that's that's so, you know, shady is is not the I'm not going to curse, but we'll say shady is probably the worst thing, you know. And I I just don't know how in with all that and then exams and everything else and you know we have to have the right clothes like that's all we were worried about in school was like runners i remember that that's a big thing you know somebody had a pair of jordan and everybody else was like how did they get the jordans like we have to up our game kind of a thing that's that was the big worry you know it wasn't about like how we looked on on uh facebook or something the amount of vanity that has happened as a result mm. of social media especially among teenagers and the amount of anxiety that they have around their social media presence and oh my god it's relentless and so many kids are going to sleep you know with it with the phone under their pillow it, it goes on until late in the night and it starts first thing in the morning and it's it's an experiment like it's only since 2012 that we've had more smartphones than dumb phones mm-hmm. and it's only really since 2012-ish that like social media has started to gain serious ground. Well, what are we 10 years into this extraordinary social experiment? And it's not going well. We all know people who are totally strung out by it. And the teenagers in particular, they're digital natives. They've grown up with it and it's not going well for them. There's a huge amount of vanity, self-absorption, massive levels of anxiety. And, um, they're they're really really unsure of themselves they haven't got a kind of song, strong sense of self because so much of it is online which is really kind of a, a nebulous kind of feeling it's it's frightening really I, I really think it's very very hard to be a teenager at the moment oh for sure absolutely and with all that along comes a, a global um pandemic that you know added more on, on top have you seen because uh, uh, with that with uh having this podcast and talking so much about my own mental health people have come to me and i remember talking to a friend who, who was just talking about how they were just in their bath one day and they just started bawling crying and they had ne- they had no understanding of why it was and they still don't really i guess but have you seen that fallout with your with your clients how many emails have have come to me saying no, I, I was managing it and then came COVID. Mm-hmm. Things were almost all right and then ha- COVID happened. When COVID happened, it just got so much worse. I, I think we will be decades realising the impact of what we've just done. I think it has been horrendously bad for our mental health. We don't know how many um, anxiety disorders, how many suicides. We don't know how much obesity has happened. We don't know how much OCD has has kind of flowered as a result of of, of um, the lockdowns. So it, it frightens me how much it's impacted. I saw a huge amount of loneliness mm-hmm. in COVID. Everybody thinking everybody else was getting to see people. And there was it was pretty devastating. And it was very much how you were. It was like musical chairs. And where were you when the music stopped? And for some people, their life was fine. It was cool. It just suited the the happened, the bounce of the ball. Yeah. It suited them. And they just didn't really know what everybody else was talking about. Why don't you bake bread and go for walks? It's very pleasant. But there was a whole other group who were 
it was such bad timing for their life and it literally ripped up their life. And it wasn't a case of how healthy were you at the beginning? It was how was your life set up to handle a lockdown? Yeah. <laughs> and that's what really, really impacted. And some people really needed. I saw my own two kids. My little boy is more of an introvert and my girl is an extrovert. I saw my daughter wilt with the lack of people in her life. Mm. And then I saw my little boy happy, loving it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Strange, isn't it? Yeah. It's a... Uh... I started this podcast, I think, like six weeks before it started. And um, I got to like talk to people in the middle of it. And it, it was really interesting, kind of like you mentioned about social experiment, but like to see how people were dealing with it. And I, I often ask during the podcast, like how people were looking after their mental health, because, you know, it was one thing about people were going for their walks and still doing that because they could. But the mental health was a different side of thing completely, it seemed, um, compared to it now. I, I, my answer was always like, well, this, I'm an, I'm not someone who's an extrovert and I'm someone who likes reading and I'm someone who likes watching films on their own. So it was kind of suited perfectly, but to hear what the, you know, the story's coming back. And, and it's interesting what you said. Um, you know, people think about like OCD or anxiety and stuff, but there was a big thing about like you said, obesity and stuff. And people were so worried about their, their, um, their physical health as well, because people were obviously eating more, maybe not getting out to maybe they didn't like walk and they prefer a gym. It, it was such a huge impact on everything. And like kids who, who who hadn't got weight on them and who were just, you know, suddenly immediately no exercise and not much to do except eat and cook and watch telly. Yeah. And what do you know, two years later had quite a significant level of weight on them. And that would probably harass them for the rest of their life yeah. like once you put on weight you're you're kind of fighting weight it, yeah. it, it's, it's not often that it goes and it stays away especially in childhood and so th- that's a, it's just a game changer for some people yeah absolutely can we talk about your podcast if you don't mind um so your podcast is gender a wider lens podcast uh you're the co-host why did you uh want to set this up wow um, yeah, we, um, myself and Sasha Ayad, she's a therapist in America. We set it up about December 2020. And the reason why we did it was we work in the world of gender and we are all, everybody, every therapist who works in gender, not only is your waiting list closed, not only have you closed all avenues, you cannot, it's, it's so busy and there's no way I like, you know, I could see even a fraction of the people who email me. We had to get a way of of getting out the information so that people could hear what we've got to say in a way that was publicly available because so many people were just getting emails from me saying, sorry, not only am I closed, not only is my waiting list closed, I don't know anybody whose waiting list is open mm-hmm. on this subject. So it's a it's a massively in-demand field. There isn't enough therapists for people who work with gender distress. And as a kid myself, I uh, had quite a significant experience of being, um, I wanted to be a boy from a very young age, from about three until certainly puberty and beyond. And it was very intense for me and it was a very uh, difficult experience for me. And um, I had lots of other difficulties, wasn't the only difficulty, but it was certainly, I had something to refer to Mm-hmm. That when the kind of transgender kind of explosion happened in the in the last 10 years or so, I kind of followed it probably that bit more deeply than most people, because I knew that was a road that I could have gone down. And um, then I, I wrote an article, as you know, I write books. Mm-hmm. And so I often write for the papers and I wrote an article about my experience and I was asked to do a film about gender issues. And that was in 2018 and the film came out in 2018 for Channel 4. And from then on, I have just been inundated. Like my email inbox, it's just insane. It's literally insane. And <laughs> two years later, we finally did the podcast just for that reason, just to kind of, she 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 works with only gender dysphoric young people. Yeah. So her inbox is insane. So we met over insane inbox thinking, what are we going to do? It was a panicky feeling of all these people that we're not helping. And we just have to say, sorry, sorry. It was a horrible, that year when it had really reached a climax, it was just a horrible feeling of not only can I not help you, I don't know where you should go. And I started a few organizations. I started a, a gender dysphoria support network 
in 2020, in March 2020, in the, uh, the COVID. And uh, then I started the podcast in December 2020, again, trying to help. And then I started another organization, which is a very big organization called Genspect in the summer 21, a year later, like all trying to get resources for this massively under-resourced field. Uh, the first time I came across, uh, I saw a documentary Louis Theroux did. Um, oh, yeah, yeah it, it was a few years ago now, but but he, he went over to the States and uh, he talked to kids who were obviously, you know, gender dysmorphic. And, and, and there was one uh, one little girl who was born a, a biologically born a boy and, you know, had the feelings of wanting to be a girl. And the parents are very supportive. So I thought this is great like you know this is a really good story he's bringing across now the whole documentary wasn't like that obviously he had to show both sides of it but and I thought this is really great but then afterwards I remember Louis through talking about it but also you know reading afterwards the amount of like like vitriol directed towards the parents you know this kind of anger and um I, I didn't quite get it because I, for me that felt like that that was the nice story like that this kid this is how this kid was you know this is there's no way around it but it was like what well, dismissing the kids feelings was the first thing that people tend tend to do was saying i had the kids only eight or whatever doesn't have a clue what they're talking about uh the parents shouldn't be letting the kid do this it was it was immediately like i i imagine it was more negative that louis threw got from it and the parents got from it than positive and i didn't quite understand and i still don't quite understand where that hate and you know dislike comes from yeah um, I think, I think we live in quite a gender bound time. I think in the eighties and nineties, kids were able to be a little bit freer insofar as there wasn't as much pink and blue mm-hmm. and the pink and blue division started, you know, obviously a hundred years ago it was very aggressive and girls were told to be pretty and quiet and boys were told to be adventurous. Then there was a bit of freedom from the 60s onwards. And, you know, we, there was an awful lot of feminists bringing up boys <clears throat> to be whatever and girls to be whatever. And there wasn't so many restrictions. And then consumer interests got involved in the in the 90s. And they uh, brought in a huge amount of emphasis on pink and blue, a huge amount of emphasis on boys being adventurous and heroic and, you know, adventures and the girls being pretty and princesses and fairies. And it was to make money. You know, if you divide the toys into pink and blue, you're going to sell way more. Same with the clothes, same with the bikes, same with the birthday cakes, etc. Massive amount of money. And at the time, an awful lot of journalists analysed that, wondered how will this impact. And how it impacted is, I think 80%, and I'm not sure my numbers here, but around about 80% of kids, they don't care. It's cool, pink, blue, whatever. There's a few kids who love it. Just give me the fairy, give me the princess. Yeah. Uh, there's another section of kids, especially children who have maybe neurodevelopmental conditions, who don't like conforming to silly rules. Mm-hmm. So there could be a boy who might have a neurodevelopmental and just say, I like the pink thing. Why is why is the world telling me I should have? It's a silly rule. It's silly. So there's a section who, that it doesn't sit well with. And then there's gender nonconforming children like myself who ha- actively want to be the opposite and feel completely imprisoned by this horrible self-created jail. When I say self-created, society-created jail that is completely unnecessary. And so that really hits hard on those kids. Thank God I didn't give up, grow up in a world where I, I wouldn't have lasted a second. I wouldn't wear anything. I'm not, of course I wouldn't wear a skirt, but I wouldn't wear anything anything no way i would have worn that loose this loose neck <laughs> right, yeah. hey, no way just get it away from me i it disgusts me do you know what i mean that was my attitude looking back i think i had a lot of a lot of internalized misogyny for whatever reason i think that's kind of interesting i'm not sure but i certainly hated all things girly now <clears throat> had i been brought up in later years and i've been asked to kind of live in that pink world i think i would have cracked up it would have been really really horrible i think it's very sad that we are still asking kids to be pink or blue to be feminine or masculine and i think there's very little room for where is the room for the little boy to run around in a fairy dress and um have a wand and wear a crown and look beautiful and where's the room 
for um, these boys to be incredibly effeminate. I think that hasn't yet happened. And I think people are quick to see that there's a problem with somebody looking like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we should medicalize that child and give them hormones so that they look like more like a conventional girl to me is quite regressive because it will um, impair their ability to have children in the future and it will impair their sexual functioning in the future and it will lead to an awful lot of medical complications because these drugs are really, really powerful. So to medicalize the the child is a step further. It's almost like the hysteria around smashing the window when the kid was actually asleep and was okay. Why can't we live in a world where the, the kid runs around? Why medicalize, if you follow me? I, I just don't understand why we need to medicalize these identities. And I would like if a society widened the bandwidth of what it is to be a boy, a girl, a man, a woman, rather than insisted on people literally change the shape of their bodies so that we can say that's a nice conforming girl and that's a nice conforming boy. Because that that seems to be the big push. Yeah. And yeah. so that that frightens me. Uh, with the podcast, then, do you, do you have people coming on, giving their, telling their experiences? Yeah, so we've got everybody coming on. Um, you know, the first couple of episodes, we talked about the theories. There's different theories about why somebody might have a feeling of of distress within them that they, they feel. Like, as you said something earlier, though, that was kind of interesting, the feelings of being a girl mm-hmm. and a we would penetrate that. We would say, well, what, what does that, you don't know what the feelings of being a girl is. Absolutely. I don't know what the feelings of being a girl is. Who am I to say that's a girlish feeling and that's a boyish feeling? That's society constructs. Mm. Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? And so you might think you have the feelings of being a girl and I could say, how do you know? Yeah. Maybe they're just feelings. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Maybe they're just feelings. It's, it gets very interesting. So we talk about the theories behind it in the first few episodes. And then we interview different people. We interview a very a boy who was very effeminate, a gay man who was very effeminate as a child for the third uh, episode, which was quite interesting because it just showed just how effeminate he was. He was mm-hmm. so effeminate. And then he grew up to be a gay man. Now, about 70 to 80 percent of children who are non-conforming do grow up to be gay or lesbian or bisexual. Now, why is that? That's a very interesting. Why are they effeminate? Why are gay men effeminate? Do you know what I mean? That's in itself interesting. And also, if you start giving sexually development blocking drugs to a child, puberty blockers, if you block that child's puberty between 10 and, and 20, are you blocking the development of, of a gay man or a lesbian woman? Yeah. And if you block their sexual development, how will they ever know that they were a gay man? Because you blocked the sexual awakening. So that can feel a very um, authoritarian and intrusive thing to do to a child. Then we have had on um, a few trans people who... Um, talk about their experiences and why they you know book angel is a very well known trans man and debbie hayton is a very well known trans woman and we had them on to discuss how they transitioned how it was for them and then we have um some detransitioners on these are people who medically transitioned and then they reversed the process mm-hmm. and decided to revert back then we have a lot of psychologists um, who work in the field for 30, 40 years and the kind of conclusions they've come to because it's really changed in the last 40 years. So probably my favorite episode is with Stephen Levine and he's 80 and he's been working in gender since the 1970s. And it's it's a phenomenal interview mm. of a man who's really, really, really got a deep understanding of gender. And um, yeah, so we're we're really immersed in this world at this stage. Isn't it funny, though, like when like I was writing this episode and I obviously want to talk about gender and, and what you talk about in the podcast. And I immediately started to think about how do I phrase things? Mm-hmm. Isn't that funny? Like and, and you mentioned about like like uh, feeling like a little girl and it's absolutely correct. Like and, and 
it's it's because well I guess I haven't brought this up before we, you know I haven't talked about this before I haven't had someone on who who kind of works in that field and it, I got it got me worried it's happened a couple of times before with different things but it's like how do I phrase that without upsetting people it's in my immediate thought is to kind of right I hope I don't set up or like upset people of a certain yeah. community and you're right to think like that because yeah. you will <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> and because um we you know when you start exploring this entire kind of phenomenon that's happened you'll realize that it, it has grown in conjunction with the rise of identity politics with the rise of social justice and with the rise of an idea of you can't say that and you and I I'd imagine I don't know what age you are but I certainly grew up in a world where there was no such thing as a silly question and you were allowed to ask a question in good faith mm-hmm. because that's how you acquired knowledge. And the 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 kind of the the perfect storm of social justice and and um identity politics along with internet has created this kind of extraordinary world where actually there's an awful lot of things you're not allowed to say. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of things that are forbidden, and you will get a huge amount of pushback and a huge amount of vitriol for phrasing something wrong, even if you meant it in the nicest, even if the depths of your heart was opened up and explored and there wasn't a bad, you know, cell in there in the question. The fact that you phrased it wrong is enough in, in this kind of political heightened atmosphere that we're in. And I think it's very important that we uh, push back against that because um, it's not good for mental health. Yeah. For somebody to be able to think properly, they need to be able to speak. And for me to think my thoughts, the only way I can make sense of what I think about something is by talking about it extensively. That's why I'm a therapist. That's how I come to kind of a good understanding of something. If I can't ask questions, if I can't use certain words, then my thought is being shut down. And that is really frightening to me because we were going to come to much more slogan kind of territory where there's no thinking and it's slogans. And that is not a good place for mental health. We need to have a freedom to be able to speak as we wish. Yeah. So that we can. Now, I'm not saying that if somebody says something disrespectful, if somebody says something really hateful, they should be taken up on it. But that's how society works. Up until recently, we were taken up on it. We were told you shouldn't say that because of it. But now you get slammed. And so what happened is, and George Orwell called it in the 1940s. He said self-censorship is the biggest threat. And all these years later, it's self-censorship that's creating the problem. It's not that people don't have thoughts. It's that people are afraid to speak their thoughts. And people are arguing that you can't say it. And they will argue very strenuously, no, Stella, you're wrong. You can't say it. And I'm like, if we keep on going like that, we're going to get sicker and sicker and sicker mentally. Absolutely. Um, I know you have a new book coming out soon. Uh, what What's the, the title and what's it about? It's called What Your Teen Is Trying To Tell You. And it's about teenagers. They are my favorite group to work with. Um, I'm very fond of them. And uh, because I was a mad teenager myself. (laughs) And the idea is, I suppose, so often when I work with teenagers, I know that their behavior, there's a great phrase, all behavior is communication. They're communicating something with with their behavior and their eye rolling and their straps. And what the book is trying to do is show what this communication they might be doing this but but they might be meaning that and it's trying to kind of show how a teenager communicates what's behind the communication because often it's fear it's sadness it's disappointment it's anger and what you might be reading is the cover story and missing the the lonely place behind that it sounds like another must read from Stella O'Malley. Um, Stella, I always ask this question too, because again, I'm interested in, in people in general, but what do you like to do in your spare time? Um, um, I uh, I like music. I like playing the whistle and playing the banjo and singing. I don't do it enough. I've been working a huge amount in the last few years and I've really let music go. And I went to a session there on Friday and I thought, geez, I've got to get back into this. Yeah. I'll be picking up the banjo, I'd say, a lot more in the next while. Um, that's my that's probably my favorite thing to do oh another thing i love to do you won't be surprised at is i love meeting people for lunch and talk yes. <laughs> i 
I'm a big talker. Which is great, though. I mean, that, that's what that's what we need. And I don't know if we uh, if we're kind of losing that a little bit as well. Like you know, it's it's the idea. Maybe maybe the you know, we if we try to list the things that helped. The, or the the pand pandemic made us kind of look at that we weren't doing enough is maybe meeting people, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really realised during the pandemic, I need, I go to Dublin, I need to meet mates once mm. in a while. And I kind of, life becomes very work, work, work if I don't. And that that was a real learning for me that I actually need. I thought it was, I didn't realise it was such a need for me. You And the other thing, like your work, if you are, you know, in, in the office or on Zoom or whatever you do, but also you're obviously writing a lot as well. So it's a lot of, um, particularly with writing, it's a lonely vocation. Yeah. So that kind of need to to get out there and meet people. And I, go, I guess like with, you know, if you are going to sessions and I don't know if you play in sessions, do you? Do you, do you I do a little perform? bit, but I haven't in years. I used to a lot. But well, maybe that's the next, maybe that's for 2023, you know. Yeah. Or 2024. <laughs> you can bring it, yeah. Well, you've got the new book as well coming soon. That's going to be a little bit of the rounds and the promotional stuff as well. Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to beat myself up on it, but I do like it, so I'm going to get back into it. Yeah. Stella, where can people find you? Oh, I'm easily found. StellaMalley.com. You'll find me easily enough. I'm on loads of social media and uh, I'm on TikTok these days. Oh, are you on TikTok, eh? Yeah, Stella Mally Psych, or psychotherapist maybe. And uh, I'm on Twitter and stuff like that. I'm easily found if you Google me. Yeah, because you're actually your website is very well put together and so easy to kind of look around and stuff, because obviously you have to do a little bit of research. Oh, very good. Uh, as you can imagine. So uh, it was very easy. But Stella, you've been an absolutely wonderful guest and very informative. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Thanks. If you don't mind, Stella, with this tradition, uh, I'll just finish this out. I'll take a quick photo and then we'll go on our way. Is that right? Cool. Thank you very much. I also need to thank John because he does the, the tech stuff that I cannot do. Um, Stella mentioned about her, her uh, being bad at tech. Yeah, well, I'm right up there with you, Stella. Um, I also want to thank, as usual, my mum and dad, my granddad, Jern Calvin for the music and the logo. Um, subscribe to us on YouTube if you would. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And then the usual uh, podcast places, Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google Podcasts, all those ones. Um Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening, whatever you did. And once again, Stella, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, everyone else, see you next week. Take care. Bye.